Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of God. The Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who are new, it's all about the fact that when we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts, when we receive Jesus into our lives, his power, the power of the gospel changes everything. And uh, that includes our sex lives. Notice, Jesus doesn't shy away from talking about sex. He addresses it immediately. And, and this is very important because a lot of people interpret whatever we've heard about Christianity, uh, the Christian view of sex, as one of the things that undermines its credibility when in actuality it's the evidence for its power. And so there are three things today after hearing this text, after reading this text, that we're going to learn that Jesus says here about adultery, about sex, about our lust. One, the brokenness of sex in our lusting. Two, the meaning of sex. And lastly, the cure in our brokenness, the healing of our sex lives. The brokenness of sex, the meaning of sex, lastly, the healing of sex. First, we're going to look at the brokenness of sex. Jesus Christ, like the Bible, is not prudish about sex at all. The Bible is filled with not only illusions but the glories and the beauties of sex. And Jesus isn't prudish about it at all, but he's also not careless about our sex lives either. On one hand, by addressing it so early in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying that sex is precious and urgent. It's an urgent topic. Verses 21 to 26, Jesus addresses murder, very urgent. Our murder, our hatred, but then he immediately jumps to adultery. He immediately jumps to lust. Verses 27 to 30. And so clearly what he's saying is this is urgent. Because what he's doing is, in many ways, he's addressing some of the capital sections of the Ten Commandments. But on the other hand, he affirms the rest of the Bible when he says that sex is designed only for a man and a woman in marriage. He affirms the law. Verse 27, do not commit adultery. When people hear that today, they say, oh, they roll their eyes. And they say, this is so primitive. But Look, this is not about ancient versus modern. This is not about being in a postmodern society. The Bible is unbelievably careful in its ethics. It's very wise. It's incredibly balanced. That's why we say that the law is perfect. And as a result, it's nuanced. If you heard the sermon last week, the text says that if you have something against a person, or if somebody has, a, has something against you, your responsibility... Your responsibility as a Christian is to approach that person and to go and reconcile with that person. Wow. We hear that and we say, wow, there's a lot of people I'm at odds with that I would never want to talk to again. But the Bible is incredibly nuanced because it also says in the book of Proverbs, do not answer a fool according to his folly. You know what that means? That means you may want to reconcile with that person. You may want and feel the need to reconcile with someone. But if that person will use that attempt, your desire to reconcile, to hurt you, 
or to further persecute you, or as an opportunity to trample over you, or as an opportunity to ambush you or beat you up, at a certain point, it's time to walk away. The Bible says that. The Bible says, don't even answer him when he comes at you. The Bible says, do not lie. Yet Rahab in the Old Testament lied. And she was commended for that. However, when it comes to do not commit adultery, there are no nuances. There's absolutely no qualification. The Bible will always hold in all, even the patriarchal passage. If you look in Genesis, we have situations where Sarah, Abraham's wife, has Abraham sleeping with her maidservant, Hagar. The Bible does not condone that just because it's in the Bible. You see the brokenness in that family. The Bible's saying this is wrong. Straight up, here in this text, Jesus Christ says, lust, your lust can lead to hell. That's powerful. Your lust can lead to hell. What he's saying is, unless you learn to deal with sex in an appropriate way, unless you deal with its power, unless you deal with its beauty, it's like handling the components of a nuclear bomb because if you mishandle it, that radiation will spread and it will poison you, poison your soul, eventually set you on fire. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's the hell. What is hell? Hell is the final state for people who reject their king, who, for people who reject God. So being in hell doesn't mean you're going to be thrown into some oven and you're just going to burn up and be annihilated and, and burned away. Hell basically means that you are separated completely, not only from your creator, but separated completely from your original design, what you were intended to be, what you were intended to do. You were intended, you were designed to be able to love. You were designed to be able to forgive. You were designed to be able to be faithful to somebody. You were designed to have integrity. But when you reject the king, when you reject his law, remember, law is uh, not just a picture of God's character, it's a picture of what we were designed to be in his image. So when you're not forgiving, when you're not faithful, when you're untrustworthy, and you run from God, and you're not thankful to God, and you violate his command, violate his law, and you're alienated from God, you're rejecting your original design, what makes you function optimally. You know what happens? You're re- you've rejected ultimate purpose, so you're going to lose purpose. You've rejected ultimate meaning, so you're going to lose meaning in life. You've rejected ultimate significance. You're going to lose significance in your life. You've rejected ultimate law, ultimate beauty. You're rejecting beauty, so you're going to lose beauty. You're going to lose uh, a lawful life. And so that's going to lead to endless cycles, endless cycles, countless cycles of seeking that type of law and beauty and meaning and significance elsewhere. And that's why we end up anxious because we'll never find it. That's why we end up depressed because we haven't found it. That's why we end up guilty because we've tried finding it in other areas and it's hurt us and hurt other people. And that's why we're angry. You see that? There's the total misery of hell. That's the hell of a self-centered life. You cannot give joy unless you first receive joy. You cannot know how to love. You cannot give love. Because true love, if you've rejected the king, you rejected love. If you rejected the king, you rejected joy. Sex, our sex lives, is one of the key ways of showing and demonstrating our submission to the king. 
And the Bible shows that it's almost central to our lives, central to our design, central to our character. And so uh, the the problem with the world is not that they have uh, too high a view of sex. They hold it up too high. The problem with the world is that we hold too low a view of sex. When you misuse sex in your life, in comes the guilt and the anger, but also comes the apathy and the boredom and the cynicism and the hardness of heart. It's the beginning of the misery. That, that the misery of hell is slowly sinking in and starting to take root and take hold. What the Bible actually teaches about sex is that it's good. It's beautiful. It glorifies almost the beauties and the healing nature of sex in many ways in an appropriate marital covenantal relationship. But like a fire, very beautiful. You want to get close. You want to almost, almost come near it all the time. It's incredibly powerful and dangerous. That's the brokenness of sex. Number two, what's the meaning of it then? What's the meaning of sex? The word adultery here represents sex outside the context of a covenantal relationship, a covenantal marriage. What's a covenant? A covenant is a love-binding, life-binding contract between two people. We say, till death do us part. And why then in the world would, in the ancient times, would they commit adultery, knowing that it's a capital crime? It's not because sex is dirty, but because it's a blatant rejection of what sex is designed to be. It's this, it's this physical reenactment of a spiritual union that happens through a covenant. What do I mean by that? Sex is a physical act that integrates your body and your soul and your spirit and your mind and your will and your emotions. It's why it's so enjoyable because it takes, it's one of the few things in your life that takes every part of you in the moment. It requires all of you in the moment. And the only other place in the Bible that talks about this type of integrative act where it requires all of your faculties, your mind, your will, emotions, is worship. It's worship. Because worship is what? Worship is when your mind and your will and your emotions are integrated in affirming, ascribing the beauty of God. And what we're saying when we worship is what? I belong to you. Holy, totally consumed by you and captivated by your beauty. I'm giving all of myself. It's why as Christians, we enjoy worship. Why does God call us then to obey the Sabbath? It's because when you overwork, you're pursuing a relationship, maybe with wealth, maybe just with power or approval of somebody, and your mind and your will and your emotions, you're giving all your of yourself, all of your days to something else when you're designed to worship God on that day. You're committing adultery against God. That's what's happening. And by sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, when there's no life-binding contract, when there's no love-binding contract that's been made, you've already, you've already given yourself to somebody else. You're giving all of yourself to somebody else in that moment. And so you are reenacting a spiritual union in a physical form when no union has actually taken place. Do you see that? That's why it says do not commit adultery. You've made yourself physically vulnerable when, when uh, you're still separate legally. You're still separate financially. You're still separate socially. In every other way, you're separate. God invented sex in a special way so that what you're doing with your body tends to have power to make your soul want to do the same thing. So in that moment, there's a relational connection. There's a relational openness, a relational vulnerability that comes with a physical connection, a physical openness, a physical vulnerability. 
You feel like you're one. You talk to each other like you're one already. You say, I belong to you. You use phrases like, you're taking me. Part of you. I'm a part of you. You're integrated like you're one, but you're not, you see. Sex outside the context of marriage separates the body from the innermost part of yourself, from your soul. And so on one hand, you feel integrated, but there's actually a disintegration, a dislocation that's happening. That's the beginning. That's like a getting on a superhighway to misery. And we have a generation of young people today uh, in spiritual apathy, literally living in spiritual apathy today, and I'm convinced it's because they've been having sex before marriage. They've dislocated their souls from their bodies, from their physical beings. What do we do? What do we do with that? Jesus says, first, verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who even looks I'm paraphrasing. Now, anyone even who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Literally in the Greek, what he's saying is, whoever looks on a woman, in other words, that's natural. Looking on a woman is natural. Whoever looks on a woman, but looks on a woman in order to lust. In other words, he's not saying that sexual desire or even looking at a person is wrong. That's natural. What he's saying is, if you can't even look at another person if you're a man and you can't look at certain women without fantasizing about them sexually, without that desire, that sexual desire for them, and you feed that desire, you are not respecting the power that sex, the hold that sex can have in our lives. Your view of sex is too low, and your view of yourself is too high. On the other hand, if you avoid all things altogether and you say sex is defiling and it's dirty, you're not respecting the beauty of sex. And so your view of sex is still too low. You see that? Jesus says, if you are looking in order to lust, in other words, if your motivation for looking at somebody, if your motivation for even having a relationship with somebody is merely to have them sexually, or merely to have a relationship with them so that ultimately you can have them sexually, you are living in lust. That's what you're doing. You're objectifying that person. That's lust. What is lust? Because the word lust is not just a sexual thing in the Bible. It appears over 60 times in the New Testament, and it's the word epithumia. Epithumia. But it's only used twice with respect to sex. What does it mean? The word means over-desire. It's an idol, an inordinate desire that sits at the core of all of your motivations, the center of your life, your real functional center. Think about this. In ancient times, knowing that you're risking death, why would you commit adultery? It's because what you're saying is, I am willing to risk my life. I'm willing to die for these things that I'm passionate about. I'm willing to die to experience a, a sensation of love. I'd rather die than lose the opportunity. That's what you're saying. Because deep in our souls, there's something that says, I need this relationship in my life. And I'm willing to give up everything, including my purity, to increase this sense of joy and approval and freedom. But the thing is, only God can give you that. Only God can give you that. And so instead, you, you, instead of giving yourselves more to God and turning from these things, we're actually turning from God and desiring these things from other people. Most of the time, as a result, we take something good and we're trying to get from it that which we can only get from God. And because sex has this unique 
integrative quality, the spiritual side to it, this cosmic side to it that gives you pleasure and intimacy and a sense of worth and also a spiritual relationship and connection, it's incredibly powerful. And so when you fantasize about somebody and you say, if I can just have that person in my arms, if I can just have that person in my bed, then I will be okay. Then I'm acceptable. I'll do anything for that person. So what do you do? You sleep with that person. Today we call it apocalyptic dating, apocalyptic sex. What is that? What they're saying is, look, we're all going to die someday. We're all going to die. We're all just chemicals who've gotten here by chance. Chemicals that bumped up against each other by chance. And so it's not going to go to anything. It's going to go to nothing when we die because there is no heaven. It is no hell. They're just figments of, of, our, of our inner need to have some semblance of, of reality, real reality. But that concept of heaven, we can experience it here on earth, a taste of that through the pleasure and the intimacy of sex. By the way, that's not too different from fantasizing about having a family. That's not too different from fantasizing about getting married. That's not too different from fantasizing about having wonderful, perfect children. Because in each of those cases, whether you're fantasizing about your job or your, your career, that end point, you're looking at something eschatologically. It's a theological term. You're looking at something as the ultimate end of your life. And you're saying, then I'll know that I'm somebody. When Jesus Christ said, I am the end. And if you come in relationship with me, until God is the lover of your soul, you're never going to be fit to be a lover to anybody. Not in a life-giving way. You're only going to be taking from people, using people, using each other to fulfill your desires. You're going to try to get out of a romantic relationship, that which only God can give, and that is an idol, and that is lust. Epithumia, that's the definition. And so your relationship becomes a way for you to feel approval, the way, the way you can feel secure and feel love without the true total commitment of, and the responsibility of a love relationship that's bound by a covenant, marriage. You're getting that all without marriage, all the thrills of marriage without the responsibility and the commitment of marriage. And you make tons of promises, but there's no true legal con contract. You can't wait. And as a result, the man or the woman really just becomes a tool for each other's ultimate sense of joy, earthly joy. Gidi Mapasan. Gidi Mapasan is a famous uh, short story writer. He, he it pretty much brought into the world the concept of the modern short story. And he had women everywhere. And he had wealth everywhere. And he vacationed everywhere. And it basically, on his tombstone, it reads, I've treasured everything and taken pleasure in nothing. I've lusted after everything and found joy in nothing. He ultimately committed suicide. The meaning of sex is a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. It has a healing quality, an integrative quality that's meant to be bound in the context of a covenant because it represents and reflects God's total commitment to his people and our submission and total commitment to him. Now, in its brokenness, knowing its meaning, how do you get healed from your lust? And Jesus says in verse 29 to 30, he says, pluck out your eye. 
cut off your hand if it's, if it's necessary. That's what he says. Throw, the, throw them away. Because it's better to lose your eye or your hand than to have the whole soul or your whole body thrown into hell. It's better to be physically dislocated than to be spiritually and cosmically dislocated. You see, your eye or your hand, these are necessities for daily functioning. Jesus is saying, this is, this is incredibly serious for your soul every day that you'd be willing to trade in your eye or trade in your hand rather than trading in your soul. And what he's saying in these very vivid imagery ways is that because of the danger of sex, because he has such a high view of sex, he says, you need to control yourself. So you may have to do something incredibly drastic. Cut out your eye. Cut out your hand. In other words, do something drastic. Because if you cut out your eye, if you cut out your hand, that means you're going to be maimed. You're going to be disfigured. That means there's certain things that you want to see that you can't see. There's certain things you want to look at, but you won't be able to look at because you can't. There's some things you, there's some things you want to touch, but you can't touch anymore. There's certain things you want to do, but you can't do it anymore. Jesus says, even if you look at someone lustfully, you're headed for danger. In other words, you need to change what you see. You need to change what you think about. There's an example. In Genesis, we have Joseph. Joseph, in the, in the later parts of Genesis, uh, he's working for Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife comes to him and says, basically a Hebrew paraphrase, she's very, very simple. She says, sex now. That's essentially what she says. Joseph could have reasoned at that time, listen, I'm living in a culture where everybody does it. This, this is a godless culture. Uh, their marriage is terrible. Society allows it and even endorses it. You know what he says? He says, think about what your husband has done for me. Think about what God has done for me. I cannot do this wicked thing. In other words, he saw differently. He thought differently. That's the heart and the will and the emotions and the mind integrated. He chose to worship God. And so even though he thinks, I need this, I want this because it's going to make me feel beautiful. It makes me feel even more powerful, more worthy. He says, please don't give yourself to me. And I'm going to empty myself of this desire. And you know what happens? He's punished for it. That's what happens. Jesus says, it's better to cut off your hand. Your hand is your behavior. Your hand is your will. He's saying, be careful where you go. Be careful what you do. Because if you only think behaviorally, but you don't see, you're going to fail. Uh, if you only act behaviorally, but you don't see, you don't think, you're going to fail. And on the other hand, if you only see differently, if you only think differently, but you don't act, you're going to fail. In other words, you need to see a reality beneath what you see, and you need to act on it. You need to respond. Jesus says, pluck out your eye. Cut out your hand. Another way of saying that is, uh, when you lose your eye or you lose your hand, you're going to feel like you're dying. And in essence, the Christian life is what? You need to die to your selfish desires. If you lose your eye, you lose your hand, you're going to feel dead. It's to die to those desires, saying, Lord, I will not have sex with somebody outside the context of marriage because I'm submitted to you. I'm dying to myself. You're dying. If, you, if you've been doing that all your life and you stop doing it, you're going to feel like you're dead. You ever see the movie Lincoln? 
The South says, we need slaves. Without slaves, we're going to die. Lincoln says, if you surrender, you may discover new freedoms that you never experienced before. Now, there are people here that are discouraged today because they feel helpless. They feel like they can't stop. One, you can't stop your thoughts. That's natural. But taking that thought, which you can't stop, and feeding that thought, savoring that thought in your soul, that you can stop. Number two, if you're just stopping because you're afraid of of being found out, you're afraid of what God's going to do to you, or you're afraid, you're trading one form of slavery to another form of slavery. When your attitude should be, I'm going to give all my desires to God. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to give up my lusts. And I'm going to give up my fears so that I can be free. Then you're going to be reborn. That's hope. That's hope. Now, there are other people in this room. Sermons like this make you feel incredibly guilty because you've had a tremendous sexual history. Remember Matthew chapter 1? We had the story of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Also, Matthew chapter 1, you have the story of Tamar. Tamar committed incest. They're rightly embedded in the genealogy of Jesus. Why? Because this is God's way of saying, I like to take the most broken people with the most messed up lives who give themselves to me, and I forgive them wholly, and I'm going to renew them with my grace and etch them and weave them into the life of Christ and then his life into ours through grace. You can be forgiven. You can be, you can be forgiven for good forever. Until the reality of that forgiveness, that you can get real freedom from your guilt, you will never be able to deal with your sexual past. You will never be able to deal with your sexual present. So you have to say, I refuse to look at my sin except through the cross of Jesus. It's hard to look at your sin without the cross of Jesus. But Romans chapter 8 says, there is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite hymns, my life is hid with Christ on high. How do you do that? You've got to look at the gospel. You've got to look at the gospel. Jesus Christ looks to the Father. And throughout the course of the gospels, you see this. He says, I belong completely to you. I'm never divided in my love for you. Never, always faithful to God. To the point of death. Philippians 2. He was obedient to God even to the point of death. And so he says to God, I want you to have all of me. I trust you at every level. I worship you. I worship you with my mind and my heart and my strength and my soul. They're integrated. That's the greatest commandment, he says. But where did God lead Jesus Christ? He led him to the cross. Jesus says, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to open myself to you. I'm going to open myself to you with my love. And basically, he says to his bride, he looks at the church and he says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be vulnerable to you. I'm going to open myself to you with my love. That's us. He says that to us. And the only time that Jesus Christ ever made himself vulnerable, ever made himself open to us, and yet we killed him. That's what we did. And he is beautiful. And he is desirable. But he became unattractive on the cross. Totally relatable to us. No one will ever understand what it means to give yourself, to give your life for the things that you treasure more than Jesus. He died for his treasure. That's the gospel. 
You want to know the proof that Jesus Christ loves you, that God loves you? Look at the cross. The cross is where Jesus Christ says, I'm willing to spill my guts and spill my blood for you. That's what he says. I will love you. I will accept you. I will open myself to you. I will trust you. I will commit to you. I am bound to you covenantally, not till death do us part, but through death, even if we die, even if I die, to the end, he says, even through death. Why, why didn't he just let go of Peter? Why didn't he just go to Peter, first of all? Peter betrayed him, his disciple. Why didn't he just go to Peter after he betrayed him and ask, why did you do this to me, Peter? He doesn't do that. You know what he asks Peter? Do you love me? In other words, this is a covenantal relationship. Do you love me? Because I'm bound to you, Peter. I trust you, Peter. I'm committed to you, Peter. Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the intimacy of Jesus. He truly loves his people, gave himself fully, gave himself wholly to his people, never lusted, never objectified his people. Rather, he said, I will sacrifice my, my life. I will sacrifice my power and my position and my title and my beauty and my honor, all to give you power, to give you a place, to give you a name, to give you beauty, all in me. I will love you to the end, even if it costs me to the end. And in so doing, Jesus Christ brought glory to his Father to the end. In other words, his, his covenant love for us, life-binding, love-binding, was intertwined in his covenant love with his Father. And so he could love his Father with his mind and heart and strength and soul in worship. And yet on the cross, what did he do? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I am physically dislocated, but I'm also soulfully and cosmically dislocated from you, my body, the Trinity. I've lost power. I've lost intimacy. I've lost a place, my place. I've lost honor. I've lost beauty, and I've become unacceptable to God so that you could be loved by God. I went, he went to the cross, and his body became disintegrated on the cross. But you see, the Trinity, because he was dislocated from the Father, the Trinity, God himself, was becoming disintegrated. His soul, his body, his will, his mind was experiencing the total cosmic and physical disintegration. And his life was falling apart on the cross because of his love, because of his faithfulness to his bride, the church. That's us. Jesus' love for his people, it left him betrayed and broken and beaten and abused and humiliated but he was so faithful so that we could be rescued and shaped into his likeness so that we would be fulfilled that's love love gives lust takes love sacrifices and pays lust takes and takes what is the cure for our lust only when you see Jesus' desire for you fully. To see that you are wholly loved, wholly accepted, wholly validated. That's going to take away the anxiety and the depression of looking for love in other places, to looking for that kind of intimacy, looking for that cosmic integrative experience because you have it with Jesus. And when you see that, to the extent that you see that, to see that when you see that Jesus desires you fully, you will see your own desire for other things misplaced. 
And when you see the extent of that, you will see how Jesus' purity and his beauty imputed to you, transferred to you on the cross. He didn't just die for your sins on the cross. He transferred his beauty and his righteousness and his purity. And that's what makes somebody who's been sexually uh, abused, on one hand, broken in sex, in their view of sex, broken in their trust of other people, be able to heal in that because we have a, a healing relationship with God. If you have misused sex in your life and you're living with guilt or anxiety over that, that's how you can heal because his purity is given to you. If you're struggling with living with integrity in that, his righteousness, his acceptance is transferred to you. That's the gospel, and it can make you beautiful, forgiven, for good, forever. You are restored. Unless you believe the gospel, unless you believe the gospel, Jesus might be your king. Maybe he'll forgive you. Maybe he's just a good example. But unless you believe in the gospel, Jesus will never be your lover. And that's what we need. That's the love that we need. That's the intimacy that we need. That's the integrative experience that we need, the encounter that we need. And if you do, you become his bride. You've never seen a bride look terrible at a wedding. The bride is always radiant and presented as radiant. And so when that bride walks down that aisle, that's you encountering your lover in Jesus. You will never see an ugly bride. You will always be radiant. He will always love you, never forsake you. You will come under his headship. You will come under his power. And that power will free you, forgive you, empower you with his love. So you will never have to look for it elsewhere. That's how you can be freed by your lust. Friends, Jesus, with all of his power, with all of his righteousness, takes this to the utmost criticality. He says, this is vital for your souls. Will you abide by it? Will you live by it? Today, you can become a spiritual version in Christ. Today, you can become spiritually whole in Christ again. Will you renew your covenant in encountering Christ in worship again? Let's respond in word and deed today. Let's pray.